Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, our topic today is something that we don't have. <sighs> something that you and I don't have, uh, like a, a real studio. <laughs> By we, I was referring to the collective we. Ah, so you're going for something more along the lines of universal health care, a plan for addressing climate change. Both worthy guesses, but I'm actually talking about the federal right to education, which I think a lot of people would be pretty surprised to learn isn't a right at all. Yeah, that's right. It's something that my students are always surprised by when I ask them how many times education is mentioned in the U.S. Constitution, and the answer, of course, is zero. Well, I'm hoping that you will walk us through what that means. Sure. What it means is that there is effectively no federal control. Uh, in education. That may come as a surprise to educators, uh, given that federal No Child Left Behind legislation uh, has been shaping schools, including through its uh, successor law, the Every Student Succeeds Act, for the past 15, 16 years. Um, but in fact, there is no right to uh, education because uh, it's not explicitly mentioned in the Constitution. Now, there are some fundamental rights that aren't specifically listed in the Constitution, uh, which have been uh, found under due process. So the right to marriage, for instance, or the right to privacy. Uh, and there have been a number of lawsuits that have effectively tried to establish a right to education. Uh, and the most well-known of those uh, is a case that went to the Supreme Court in 1973. Uh, this is San Antonio Independent School District versus Rodriguez, commonly known as the Rodriguez case, where parents had sued San Antonio and several other districts, along with the state of Texas, for violating the 14th Amendment. So this is the Equal Protection Clause specifically of the 14th Amendment. Um, and their claim was that equal protection was not being provided because there was discrimination uh, based on wealth that rich districts had more than poor districts and a kind of fundamental right to education uh, was being violated here. The parents won uh, all the way up to the Supreme Court. And so some of the examples that they had offered were um, classrooms in poorer districts, which were poorer because of the property tax funding of local schools. Classrooms were 50% smaller Library books uh, were scarcer, half to a third as many. Class sizes were 50% larger. There were uh, about a tenth as many counselors per pupil. And so the case made it to the Supreme Court, which eventually ruled that San Antonio's financing system didn't violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And uh, they, they reached that decision uh, because they said that in order for that to be the case, education would have had to be a fundamental right. Um, and so the right to be educated uh, was neither explicitly or implicitly uh, anywhere in the Constitution according to the Supreme Court. Now, at the state level, this is a different story. So there have been victories at the state level where education is established as a fundamental right. So uh, a case 
that was decided around the same time as the Rodriguez case uh, is the California case Serrano versus Priest, where a lawsuit with a parent who was named as plaintiff sued the California state treasurer on the grounds of a 14th Amendment violation, and they won. And the case was upheld even after the Rodriguez decision because the California state constitution does identify education as a fundamental right. Well, we have a special guest standing by who thinks that Jack may be wrong about the absence of a constitutional right to education. Law professor Derek Black joins us now. Derek, you have a new piece out in the Stanford Law Review. It's very impressive. Many, many footnotes. And you argue, and I quote, that the framers of the 14th Amendment specifically intended to guarantee education as a right of state citizenship. Walk us through your argument and why you think it matters. I think it's gotten missed because there's so much going on at the end of the Civil War where we're trying to put the nation back together, we're trying to get southern states readmitted, we're trying to pass the 14th Amendment, and we're trying to create an education system. And so you have three or four things going on, and you know we've got excellent experts that have looked at all of those issues independently. What I tried to do is to look at them uh, together, and what I saw was that um, one fact, which I think is, is pretty common knowledge, at least amongst experts, which is most of the education clauses that we see in constitutions today all date back to the post-Civil War period. So a large chunk of those were, were passed in, in 1868, 1869, 1870, saying that, you know, Alabama, Mississippi, et cetera, they are obligated to provide public education to their students, and it may describe them in some sort of qualitative ways. But we normally just look back to those dates and go, okay, that that's when it happened. But what I found was that when Congress was setting the terms of readmission to the Union for Southern Confederate States, that it made them rewrite their constitutions, that Congress understood those constitutions were deficient um, and and they needed to sort of come into the, the 19th century. And Congress also understood that for former slaves and also a lot of poor whites to have any chance at participating as, as full-fledged citizens, they needed education. And so uh, Congress insisted that states rewrite those constitutions and that education be part of that. Now, that insistence is maybe not as obvious as I might like uh, initially, but what we see is that prior to the Civil War, none of these uh, Confederate states had affirmative education clauses. And after the Civil War, uh, all but one did. Um, and in fact, the, the the three the last three to be readmitted to the union actually Congress's uh, statute that it passed that laid out um, sort of the terms moving forward specifically said that Mississippi uh, Texas and Virginia are admitted but they shall never change their education clauses and again this is sort of reaffirming my idea that Congress said look you must have education if you're going to be a state in, in the United States of America. And that's because we also have a constitutional provision that says uh, that Congress shall guarantee a Republican form of government or a democracy to all of our states. And so during this period of time, education becomes a central part of that democracy. So you've got this flurry of Southern states rewriting their constitutions to include public education as part of a condition for being let back into the Union. How does that complicated process then play into the 14th Amendment, which still hadn't been ratified? 
because we needed Southern votes for the 14th Amendment to become part of the Constitution. Without the Southern states, the 14th Amendment is not part of the Constitution. Congress also said, if you're going to reenter the Union, you must ratify the 14th Amendment. And so all of these things are happening at the same time. I won't go through all the sort of legislative details, but the short story is I argue that um, that the right to education becomes an aspect of state citizenship in 1868, and it's at that very same moment that the 14th Amendment becomes part of the Constitution, and so these two things are intricately linked. The last time you and I talked, you made a claim that's just going to drive Jack Schneider crazy. You said that that the really that you know the internet has made it possible for anybody to be an historian, and and I love that. And we, <laughs> you were talking about how you went back and you looked at the the constitutional conventions in all these states and the debates that they were having about these education clauses, and that you you were surprised by the intensity of the conversations and by the the substance as well. So give us make some of that come alive for us. Well, so as to not jo- drive Jack too crazy, I'm going to blame Daniel. Farbman uh, uh, come out of the PhD program at Harvard's uh, uh, American Studies, and he didn't say anyone could be a historian. He said the things that historians use are right there at your fingertips. So maybe that's a better way of putting it. Um, but but in any event, yeah, I mean, it was quite remarkable. One of the most robust state constitutional conventions was in South Carolina, which is not a place where any of us would think of as being a hotbed of, of progressive of progressive policy. Um, but that state convention was um, majority African American and a lot of northern carpetbaggers, I suppose. But as I read those debates, it was just shocking. And the things that were shocking was not only did they vote to approve an education clause, they voted to uh, mandate that that education be open uh, to all on non-discriminatory terms. And so in 1868, they were considering African American and white children going uh, to school together and said, this shall be the constitutional norm in our state. Now, there were some people that said, wait a minute. But I didn't read anyone saying, no, we shouldn't you know, ha- we shouldn't have integrated schools as a general principle. I heard some of them saying the white kids won't show up if you do that. Uh, but that did not deter them from passing that bill. By the same token, you know, we think of um, poll taxes as a dirty word today, the sort of thing that was used to disenfranchise African-Americans. These African-American legislators and overwhelming number of whites as well said, you know what, we're going to have a poll tax, and we're going to have it because we need to fund public education, and we think people are are desperate to vote, and we know we can raise some money this way, and we're going to build our education system on a poll tax. Now, they were nice enough to say, but if you can't pay it, we'll let you vote anyway. But I do think right, it really tells us something, that they were willing to put you know education uh, at such a high level and, and have everyone come together to support that. And they understood if they didn't do it... Um, their society might not move forward, that they really needed to make sure education was available. Derek, what do you say to somebody who remembers 10th grade American history uh, from Reconstruction onwards, as it's often taught, uh, and who says, you know, I seem to remember that things didn't work out so well for African Americans uh, after the Civil War, that, you know, the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, that was all fine and well, but uh, we see the collapse of Reconstruction pretty quickly after that, the withdrawal of uh, Northern troops, and then a retrenchment uh, into, you know, what eventually becomes known as, uh, you know, the, the Jim Crow setup. 
And uh, and I'm wondering for that person, how do you respond uh, as to the importance of these state constitutions, these protections for education that were enshrined in law and that ended up not being enforced, uh, and that with regard to education funding, which is something that you talk about in the article, uh, yielded cents on the dollar for African American schools. Yeah, I guess the first thing I would say is um, that you know it, it's all how we frame frame the story, and so I, I'll confess to that. But you know, I wrote an article about ten years ago. It's called "The Elusive Future and Storied Past of Education," or something like that. And you know, you look at the data. What what you can see is that notwithstanding all of the discrimination, notwithstanding uh, inequality, sort of African American educational attainment has been on a steady rise, has always been on a steady rise, and it continued through Reconstruction. Uh, it cre- it re- continued after Reconstruction. It continued through Jim Crow. That uh, I think what you see is that that thirst for education in the African-American community it was unquenchable. They made uh, that commitment in 1868, and as hard as Southern legislatures tried to not comply with the Constitution, there was enough thirst, whether it was at home, you know, uh, under a lamp or, you know, out in the field under a tree, African-Americans trying to learn. And, you know, they were getting access to education. It may have been unequal, but they were getting it. And um, so my response to this, uh, and it came up at AERA, that someone said, well, you know, what we really need is sort of new legislation, new law, you know, Reconstruction failed, uh, you know, we, our Constitution failed. That's not true. We did it exactly right in 1868. What happened after that was a refusal to comply with what we had asked of ourselves. Um, and so that history lays dormant for about 100 years. But it is the case that in the 1970s, all of the, not all, but the vast majority of school funding reforms uh, that are forced into existence through litigation are all based upon these constitutional amendments that were passed in the 1860s. So they may have been buried for a century, but they have come back to life, at least at the state level, um, and explain a lot of these you know, school funding battles that we've seen over the last two and three decades. One of the reasons that we're having this conversation today is that there's such an intense push on, really at every level, to redefine public education as a sort of private personal good and what's so fascinating about going back and 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 looking at the history that you've been examining is how how clear it is that education was defined as a as a public good for a very public purpose mhm yeah i mean one of the tricky things in in litigating um the constitutional right to education is is what you just said, that it's articulated as a public good. And sometimes, and with lawyers getting a hold of things, say, well, if it's a public good, then no individual can actually complain about it. Only the overall community can complain about it. Um, but yes, it was certainly a public good. And you look at some of these, they talk about the public education system as preserving liberty itself, right? And so that it really is aimed you know, not at helping Johnny get a job, but preserving the liberty of the republic itself. Now, Johnny can certainly get a job with the things that he he learns out of the public education system, but it has this broader broader goal. And you're right. Um, you know, over the last 
decade and a half, two decades, there's a, you know enormous erosion at the idea that public education serves a public value, that instead it serves private interests. The other thing that really stands out in those historical debates over education in the states is how aware people seem to be that public education had to be protected from political meddling. And it gets written right into the state constitutions. Like, keep your legislative myths out of this. Fast forward to today and you have all these, you know, what seem like obscure battles raging about the state structures of public education. I'm thinking about Ohio, for example, where the Republicans want to basically get rid of their state board of education and move it into the governor's Let's office. Let's look at Kentucky. You know, uh, Kentucky uh, legislature agreed to, uh, you know, put some money into the pensions and increase some school spending, maybe not everything teachers wanted, but enough for them to, to at least go back to work. And that they only did that over the governor's veto. So what does the governor do, you know, following that? Well, you know, he loses the school funding battle, but, you know, he gets his folks that he'd appointed to the to the state board to remove the state superintendent, uh, not for cause, and the state superintendent had a year and a half left on, on his contract, just to remove him and replace him with someone out of his own office that had helped author the charter school bill uh, recently in Kentucky. So it's like, yeah, I may have lost the budget uh, battle, but, you know, I'm going to put a new person in here that's going to make these, these dollars move where I want to. I mean, that's that's an in- incredibly dangerous thing. You know, we had the same thing in North Carolina. Uh, you know, they have a change at the state level, and so uh, in the election of 2016, and so what's the legislature do in their final moments, uh, you know, going out the door? They want to change the way the state board is appointed. They want to change uh, who has authority over various decisions so they can continue their policies. We saw Governor Pence do the same thing uh, in Indiana. The, the, as I'm thinking about this right now, I, I had to confess that, I don't know what the perfect way is to elect a state superintendent or a state board of education. Uh, I don't know what the perfect powers are that a governor should or shouldn't have. But what I do know is that when you look at what was happening during the 1860s, you saw efforts to try to isolate state educational decision-making from the regular political process, that it was separate and apart over to the side. And now what we've seen in the last three years are governors in various states or legislatures trying to, as you say, reconfigure who gets to make these decisions uh, because they don't like the politics or rather they don't like the apolitical stance. So like, I have a political position. I want the state board to carry it out for me, or I want the superintendent to carry it out for me. And I will change whatever rules I have to change to try to make that happen. And thank goodness we've got a constitution in in Indiana that said, eh, you know, governor can't really do that. Um, we've got a constitution in North Carolina that says, eh, legislature really can't do that. I'm not really sure whether what just happened in Kentucky was constitutional or not. Um, I'm going to have to look into that more. But again, there's these constitutional norms that are trying to protect us from from current political instincts. And I don't know who's going to win this battle in the end. You said earlier that many of the legal victories of the past several decades were a result of uh, provisions made in state constitutions a hundred years ago or more. And I'm wondering if those protections were in state constitutions, then what's the purpose of establishing a federal protection, uh, you know, a, a U.S. constitutional protection for education? 
Yeah, so the, the argument that I lay out is a couple of things. One, that there are sort of a baseline be- below which states shouldn't drop. Right? So if we just say, well, a state can do whatever it wants with its constitution, then they're free to change it, they're free to lower the level. By adding a federal hook to it, we say, no, there's only so far below, you know, such a low level that a, that a state can go to. I think that's very important, um, you know, as we see these current political debates going on, and we see Florida, Kansas, and some others saying, hey, maybe we should amend our constitution and, and do it in a way that I think it's less helpful to students. So I think it's important in that way. You know, the other way that it's important is that if those state constitutions or sort of the obligation to have those state constitutions really flows from uh, the, the federal constitution itself, then that means that Congress can scrutinize certain state actions. So right now, let's just use Kentucky. You have a right to a sound basic education or an adequate education in Kentucky, uh, and the only people you can complain to are the state Supreme Court. Well, in states where the state Supreme Court is up for election uh, or the state constitution is is subject to to, uh, amendment, then when people don't like the results, they can unelect the judges. It's happened in Ohio. It happened in Alabama. Uh, There's been threats in other states. We've had something very similar happened here in South Carolina. And so uh, there is a danger in allowing the state to sort of police its own uh, its own education system because sometimes political forces take over. But if there's a federal hook, right, a federal judiciary can say, wait a minute, now here are some sort of baseline standards you have to adhere to. We understand you have an enormous amount of discretion, but there are certain things you just can't do. And so I think that that um, that federal protection assures that states don't go backwards on their obligations. Maybe that's the best way to put it. Uh, and without that federal protection, we've seen that, that states can go backwards. We can, and we also see governors threatening courts. We'll defund you. We'll take, you know, in Kansas, we'll we'll just do away with the judiciary's budget if you wanna if you wanna second guess our uh, our school spending. And that's a very dangerous a very dangerous thing to see. I want to speed us up to the present. That teacher uprising that started in West Virginia has now spread to Arizona and Colorado. You had a great piece in the LA Times this week where you argued that funding cuts and the expansion of school choice in these states are part of an assault on public education. And you ended the piece on a pretty ominous note. I'm going to read the end here because I'm still thinking about it. Here's what you had to say. These tactics reveal that public education is under long-term assault no matter what short-term concessions are won in Arizona or by other teacher protests. Education advocates must start guarding our constitutional and democratic norms in education as jealously as they are guarding teacher salaries. Otherwise, they will wake up one day with nothing left to defend. It is incredible what people have been trying to do to constitutional norms in education. I mean, go back to the 1860s again. They said, look, the state is going to be committed to a uniform system of public education. Everyone gets to go equally. It's going to be the first funded thing that the state does. We're going to set up state school boards, uh, you know, state superintendents, and they're going to be outside the political process. And over the last two years, we see politicians trying to renegotiate those norms. Right? Well, we can fund vouchers before we fund public education, right? And if the Constitution won't let us do that, let's change the Constitution. Uh, by the same token, uh, normally, you know, there's this 
separate system for electing you know state school board officials and superintendents but now we've got someone in those positions that the governor doesn't like or the legislature doesn't like so they just want to change the rules and so uh, what you really see or what i see is that education policy is becoming a political football like anything else uh, and that's dangerous. Our, our founding fathers and mothers uh, said, no, we actually want to put education to the side. It comes first, and it's not political. And and we're losing that. And once it becomes uh, political or overly politicized, um, there may be nothing left to fight for because, uh, you know, bridges. We can repair the bridges this year or not, right? We can, you know, uh, improve the electricity grid this year or not. Do we really want public education to become a thing that we do or don't do on a given on any given year, or we give teachers a raise sometimes but not other times? I think that's a very dangerous path to start down. That was Derek Black. He's a professor of law at the University of South Carolina School of Law and the author of, most recently, The Constitutional Compromise to Guarantee Education that appeared in the Stanford Law Review. Jack and I will be right back with a few last thoughts. So, Jack, a few episodes back, we told the story of what was happening in West Virginia through the voices of a number of striking teachers there. And you boldly predicted that what we were seeing was really just the beginning, that the combination of low pay, cuts to education funding, and the erosion of things that people liked about teaching as a profession was going to mean a teacher uprising. So I want to compliment you on your foresight. But one of the things that is so interesting to me about what we're seeing in these states where teacher pay and school funding have emerged as flashpoints is that you actually hear people referring to their state constitutions and what their states are constitutionally obligated to provide. It was one of the things that was most interesting to me to hear Derek talk about because there are going to be bad actors. That was something that he seemed to be implying. But of course, if you have these rights enshrined in law, then there is a kind of ultimate check on that. And one of the things that he talked about was you know, the potential for bad actors at the state level where if you can't uh, you know, make a demand on your state government, you can actually appeal one level higher. But I think it's also indicative that that there that public education and the expectation that it's something we're entitled to really is a kind of bedrock thing. And the that you see, you know, in these states where not just the teachers and the school employees are rising up, but the the their communities and their parents seem to be standing alongside them. And and part of the reason for that is they're saying that this thing is really important to us and it's more important than, say, low taxes. And I think, you know, when we divide the world so neatly these days into red and blue and and we forget how just how deep public education runs in our in our history and listening to Derek and reading his paper and and letting him be the sort of tour guide through that history, I found so eye-opening. I think it would also be really surprising to most people that they don't have a federal right to education. And I think it's really interesting to explore what that means, because there is a kind of implicit right uh, in the sense that people believe 
that they have this right. Uh, and I would imagine, I'll go out on the limb and make a, another prediction for the future, I would imagine that in the next several years, we will actually have not a constitutional crisis, but a kind of coming to terms around the fact that there is a divide between what people imagine the law is and what the law in fact says. We talked a little bit with Derek about battles that are playing out in several states right now where you basically have efforts to rewrite state constitutions uh, and change the wording around public education. In Florida, for example, they have something in their constitution about that they have to provide a uniform, efficient, safe, secure, and high-quality system of free public schools. And they want to change that and you know make it about individual learning options. One of the things that will be interesting to follow uh, as this reckoning begins to unfold will be the way that education is defined. And it's something, again, that we talked about with Derek. Is it defined as a public good, as something that is necessary for ensuring a Republican form of governance, uh, for ensuring you know, a, a successful uh, democracy? Or is it defined as a private good that enables an individual to get ahead? Well put, Jack. And to our listeners, if you appreciate insights such as these, we hope that you'll consider becoming a supporter of this podcast. Last episode, we announced that we were stepping boldly into the future and starting a Patreon page. That's what people do now. You can find us at www.patreon.com backslash have you heard podcast. For a small donation, you can get access to all sorts of cool subscriber-only stuff, like an extended play version of each episode where we go into the weeds on the topic of the hour. And Jack, I'm happy to announce that our supporters now number in the high single digits. I notice that you have not specified the number and that's good. It'll really keep people uh-huh. guessing and maybe that can be one of the secrets we unlock uh-huh, yes. on our extended episode. Uh, if you're enjoying the high quality content that we put out once every two weeks and you don't feel like chipping a few coins in for it, that's fine. You can you can pay it forward to us by going on and giving us a review, preferably with as many stars as is allowed, and maybe even a bonus star if you can figure out a way to do that. Until that time, I'm Jack Schneider. And I'm Jennifer Berkshire. This is Have You Heard. <laughs>